0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by BlackRock Health, providing patients with world-class clinical care and comfort, enabling swifter recoveries. But first this morning, I'm joined by one of the most respected, razor-sharp voices in Britain. Coming from a privileged and wealthy background, Polly Toynbee is an award-winning Guardian columnist, broadcaster and author, and formerly, of course, the BBC's social affairs editor. In her just published memoir, An Uneasy Inheritance, she relates a really colourful and entertaining examination of her own family and asks for a truly honest conversation about the class system in Britain. And Polly joins me now. Good morning, Polly Toynbee. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Listen, it's a great read. It's very enjoyable. Will you just tell people a little about your family and the world you were born into? Because I suppose, as you say yourself, it was a fairly privileged upbringing. Yes, my
1: family for generations and generations has been highly educated, professionals, writers, academics, professors, administrators, um, all in good, comfortable, professional jobs. But what made them different and exceptional is that they were all on the left. They were all engaged in a perpetual battle against the forces of conservatism, but that always left them rather uncomfortable. That's why I called it uneasy inheritance, because they didn't know how to cope with being privileged, having nice, comfortable, good jobs, good standard of living. A comfortable life, but an uncomfortable conscience and very aware of class privilege and the kind of awkwardness that was sometimes quite comic and they dealt with it as best they could. But it's always that thing. If you're on the left and, you know, you're, you're in a well-off middle class job, you're a hypocrite. You're a champagne socialist. And uh, they found that and I found that quite hard to cope with.
0: And of course, your ancestral home was Castle Howard, that many people listening this morning will know from things like Bridgerton and Brideshead. Your father is fascinating. Your grandfather was the historian Arnold Toynbee. Your family is littered with Mitford's, Glenn Connors, Howard's and Bonham Carter's. So it's not just an average privileged family, Polly. Sure it isn't.
1: No, it isn't. I mean, it's true. There were all these connections, but it wasn't that kind of money. I mean, my great, great grandmother, who was the sort of uh, Chatelaine of Castle Howard, she had 11 children. So there were an awful lot of descendants (laughs) amongst amongst them all. And, you know, my, my inheritance touches on all of that. But my immediate, you know, grandparents, parents were not kind of Rich like that, it was comfortable, upper middle class, you could say, but it wasn't uh, landed gentry, really. And these refinements become very important because people are incredibly aware of the small gradations of difference uh, all the way through. I mean, I started off making a radio program called The Class Ceiling, and I just stopped everybody everywhere in the street, asked everyone, tell me when you first became or when you have been aware of class, either feeling too posh or not posh enough. And I've yet to find anybody who can't come up with a story where class was an embarrassment for one reason or another, Uh, you know, either Mm. being put down by it or being embarrassed by it. And I think it really matters much more than writers normally acknowledge. It's tucked away. They don't discuss it very much because it is an embarrassment.
0: It's still, Britain is incredibly class conscious, isn't it, Polly? And interestingly, it's almost like through the prism of your own family story, you examine the state of class in Britain.
1: Well, as I've written so much about class uh, about social injustice, inequality, all my life, all my books, um, my journalism, social affairs editors, been very much on that theme. When it came to thinking about my family, I thought, well, I'm going to look through, at it through that prism. I could have looked at it through a Freudian point of view. There's plenty of, Every family has its Freudian traumas of one kind or another. But I simply chose to use them as an example in a way, but also Something comic and quite self aware about being the left wing middle class and always the minority up against a majority conservative world in England, anyway. That I uh, say England rather than Britain, that every, you know, at nearly every election of my lifetime, they win, win, and win again. And the left loses and loses, picks itself up and dusts itself off and starts all over again. But it's always a struggle.
0: Tell me about your dad, Philip. He's a fascinating character and you write affectionately and funnily about him as well. I mean, he was a writer. He was a friend to the Midford sisters. He also had issues with alcohol. Tell me about him and I suppose your relationship with him, Polly.
1: Well, he was delightful and funny and clever and interesting, but also tempestuous and difficult. And he was a serious alcoholic. I mean, not a violent alcoholic, but just often drunk on almost any social occasion. So my childhood has been littered with events where he was drunk out of his mind or drunk driving or things of that sort. Um, but I was very, very fond of him and he was a great pleasure and great fun to have as a father. But he was endlessly striving with a guilty conscience all the time trying to think of ways of living better, ways of being good. And he ends up by setting up an absolutely disastrous agricultural commune in which he invites people from the alternative hippie world to come and live in his house, uh, but none of them ever do any digging or any agriculture. He's left all of the, to all of that himself. And, of course, they run out of money and it all falls apart and is a disaster. But that was his attempt to try to put together his principles with the way he lived. It didn't work out too well.
0: You also recount that when you were a child, I suppose, you were actually desperate to be friends with children who teased you for being Miss La Da. Tell me about that and when you became aware of yourself that you were different because of your privilege. <laughs>
1: I think I wanted to reach back, and I think perhaps people shouldn't think, what's the first time in your childhood you can remember being aware of class differences? Sometimes the subtle ones within a family, within cousins or people who are up or down or doing better or worse. And in particular, because I spent a lot of time with my father in the country, my parents were divorced, and I was always looking for friends, local village friends, and, you know, would quite often it would come up that their friends would turn around and say, oi, Miss Posh Pants, la-di-da, and, you know, kind of tease me for being posh, for the way I talk, listen to the way I talk, which was different to the way they talked. And they knew my life and my background was different to theirs. And that's kind of excruciating. You can't do anything about it. But it's not seriously excruciating. What's really excruciating is their lives They being held down by their background in the way that I was pushed up by mine.
0: Yeah. And, you know, on that at boarding school, you say, Polly, you became all too aware that the problem with the English class system is that money is not the whole story. Other factors are more important than just wealth.
1: Oh, yes, indeed. Because, you know, once you get, after all, you're talking about a private boarding school, you're talking about 7% of the population. It's always minute, and actually, boarding Mm -hmm. school, even smaller. But within any group of people, is what I wanted to say. And this was just the group that I happened to be brought, uh, you know, educated with. There are subtle gradations. And this. You know, in that school, they divided people to the A stream and the B stream. And there was no doubt that the A stream were the children of professionals and the B stream, the children of trade and businessmen and uh, farmers. And so subtle, subtle differences, even amongst the privileged. And I think that's true everywhere. You know, you look at people who come from working class families. They will talk about the people next door being better or worse than them in some way or another. You know, it's something that most families are aware of. And I think most children know within a school, within a short time, children know the child who hasn't got the dinner money, who hasn't got the right PE kit. You know, they Mm -hmm. they know which ones. And it's painful.
0: You didn't do that well academically in school, but you make the point that you were probably afforded opportunities that you might not have been afforded had you not done well and come from a working class background. Tell me about that.
1: Absolutely. I was very rebellious at school. I, I hated school. I fought against it. I failed the 11 plus, didn't get many O-levels until I then went to a comprehensive, which was a new comprehensive, where just wonderfully one particular teacher said, right, I'm going to get you into Oxford, which my parents thought was a comical idea at that stage. And he made me retake those O-levels, take A-levels, and and I got a scholarship mostly off his tutoring And I, you know, this was terrific. And I wrote in the book that I afterwards wondered, well, is this because he knew about my background and must have thought she comes from an intellectual family, there must be something in there somewhere. But I've been rather delighted since the book's been out, it's only been out a week, I've had some contact from people who were also taught by this teacher mostly younger than me I mean other generations who say he did that for them too and Mm. they were from working class backgrounds so I'm glad it wasn't just me that got picked out for special tutoring and for kind of recovery education uh, which I didn't deserve because I'd thrown away all these opportunities that most people don't have
0: just another great teacher, actually, that obviously made a difference to you and those other children who've written to you. But then followed the Oxford Entrance Exam, which you say was designed to reward people of your background. How so? The Oxford
1: Entrance Exam, ai don't think it's like that now. It had a general paper. And the general paper had, I don't know, maybe about 40 questions. You could choose what essay you wanted to do. And the questions were wild, imaginative, peculiar, sometimes just one word. You could spin anything out of it you wanted. It was a paper that said, come on, show off to us, show us what you can do. It wasn't a paper like most exams that say, we're going to catch you out for what you can't do. So I did well in that, but then afterwards, uh, you know, I think looking back, it was exactly the sort of paper for somebody who was going to be a newspaper columnist like me. You mm-hmm. uh, spin things out of stories out of the air in a way. And uh, it also relied on touching down on cultural markers, mentioning books you'd read, music you'd heard, paintings you'd seen, plays you'd been to. It favoured anybody who had that kind of cultural background who could make passing references, glide across the surface of culture and civilization in a way that my background gave to me, but other people who might be much cleverer than me didn't actually have those uh, little tactile measuring points.
0: There's lots of great moments in your book, but tell us the one about the sight of a certain baby. Now, you tell the story in the book about you were very young, you were a teenager, you were very early pregnant, you did have an illegal abortion, but you say it was also impacted by the sighting of a certain baby. Who was that baby and how did you come to encounter him? Well,
1: my boyfriend at the time uh whom I, I got pregnant when I was seventeen, uh, took me to see his sister, who was a student at Oxford, uh, and she married and but was living a very restricted life in a flat in Oxford, looking after a baby who was a big, pink, fat baby with a shock of blonde hair, <laughs> called Alexander, and I looked at him with great distaste, and of course he then grew up to be Boris Johnson. <laughs> Looking much the same, not much changed, I would say, from how he was at six months old. Does
0: he know that story, I wonder?
1: Oh, yes, he does. Uh, I I, I mentioned it to him and uh, I think we probably have, you know, the same view of each other, probably equal distaste, I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think because obviously you're known, Polly, for your progressive centre-left politics. Is it true? I think he described you once as the high priestess of our paranoid, mollycoddled, risk-averse, airbagged, booster-seated culture of political correctness and elf and safety fascism. (laughs)
1: That's <laughs> the kind of that's the kind of he is. He thinks you know, doing anything to help other people to see their working lives are safe, or to see that they're safe in driving cars. I mean, airbags, you know, on the whole, good thing saved yeah. a lot of lives. Saved a lot of lives. Uh, that whole sort of spectator uh, Daily Telegraph attitude that towards the nanny state, I find absolutely repellent. As much as he finds my views repellent, uh, you know, I think saving lives and helping people is on the whole a good thing.
0: It's actually fascinating as a journalist working here across the Water Polly in Ireland. You know, I work a lot on current affairs and news. How divisive that kind of journalism is, you know, on one side, as you say, The Spectator and different kinds of papers and digital subscriptions. And on the other side, more left wing. It is incredibly divided, isn't it?
1: I think it is very much so, and always was. It's a different style. It's a different way of thinking. Uh, there is a particular kind of right, sort of cultural right wingery, uh, and I suppose a cultural left wingery too. But there's no doubt that Brexit made all of that far worse and far deeper. And it stopped being about a matter of opinion and became about something that seemed profoundly important to people on both sides. I think it was—it has been a great shock to the political system that we're only beginning to come out of now. It's beginning to get a bit better. Uh, It'll last
0: a while, I think. You abandoned, I think, your education at Oxford midway through your second year. Why did you do that? And do you regret that now? Because I know I think you say sometimes it can be used against you.
1: Oh yes, you know, anyone who looks up my record says, oh well, she never even got a degree, she never even got eleven plus, uh, she, she's stupid. I mean, that's the sort of thing I get I get from those right wingers. But I think I feel ashamed about giving up, you know, to have got an Oxford scholarship was fantastic. And I I find it quite hard. I mean, it's so long ago now, we're we'll we talking, you know, 50 years ago. To find, You know, you rewrite your history all the time and the reasons for it. There were all sorts of reasons. Unhappy affair, never liked Oxford anyway. My family was imbued with Oxford. My grandfather, my great-grandfather was a Regis professor of Greek. My grandfather, my great-aunts, they were all big Oxford f- academic figures. And I felt oppressed by the need to do very well. And I just always kicked against education. And I do regret it, and I am ashamed of it now. But I left and went off to... I I'd had written a novel while I was there. It came out the first term I was there. I left and went off to, I thought, insanely, work with my hands so that I could keep my mind free for planning my second novel. And I would go home in the evenings and write my second novel. I've worked in a sugar factory for a while, and I've quickly discovered why people who work in a sugar factory don't, on the whole, write novels, come home exhausted. Uh, And um, so after that, I took to journalism. Because I'd written a novel, I got invited to write for the New Statesman, and I wrote for them quite a bit. Then I got a temporary job on The Observer, and then it turned into a permanent job. And then I decided that journalism was really, for me, much more than novel writing. I actually liked finding out real things, finding out about the real world. But I felt very inadequate. I felt I didn't, you know, I had a middle-class upbringing, been to Oxford, what did I know? And so I took time off and went and took a lot of jobs around the country. I worked in a Lucas's car parts factory in Birmingham. I worked in Unilever soap factory in Port Sunlight. I worked in a hospital uh, at a cake factory, and I joined the Women's Army for a bit. And I needed to explore what ordinary lives felt like, were like, what jobs were like. And it was a time when in industrial reporting was important. And when I came back from doing that, I was then put onto lots of industrial stories. A lot of strikes were going on then. And I found that fascinating and important. So that's the sort of journalism that I did at that stage.
0: And you've had a glorious career, but you urge any future Polly Toynbee's to recognise the hypocrisy of people like us. What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you have to be very aware that you can go and write about other people's lives. It's very hard to really experience them, to know what it would be like to be insecure if you're very secure yourself. If you've never had a day worrying mm-hmm. where the next meal is going to come from, when you go and talk to people who live much closer to the edge, you have to be aware of what a leap of imagination it takes uh, to imagine being somebody else, to imagine other people's lives, uh, but not to sentimentalise them either. But I think realistic reporting is extremely important about everyday lives, and maybe we don't do enough of it.
0: And what would you say, Paul, I suppose, you know, it's always, I think you mentioned it earlier yourself, criticisms of, you know, champagne socialists, that there you are, you're known for this extraordinary career you have worked at so hard. But when you come from that privilege, is that an uneasy juxtaposition? And is it, this may sound harsh, is it slightly hypocritical to end up doing that when you've had such a privileged life?
1: Well, of course it is, and if, you know, on the right, everybody says all the time, oh, champagne socialist, you hypocrite, to which I end up in the book saying, okay, right, so is it better if you are a professional, earning a decent, good professional salary, is it better than to be a Tory so that you can vote for and support holding on to what you've got? Is that somehow morally better than the embarrassments of being on the left and yet also big privilege. I think it's not better. I think it's worse. I've ended up with a focus group we did for a a book we wrote called Unjust Rewards of people who were extremely well paid, I mean, up to 10 million a year, bankers, uh, city lawyers, and questioning them about their attitudes. And it's quite plain that they are completely clueless and pretty much indifferent to how most people live. I mean, never mind the poor, but just to what's normal when they put the themselves on the scale of earnings, they put themselves somewhere in the middle, not in the top 0.1%. They don't really care and aren't interested. Uh, and then they said things like, well, if, you know, of course a, n- a nurse earns less than we do, a nurse, it's a vocation and a nurse will have chosen that occupation. A nurse could have chosen to go into banking, which is, of course, ridiculous. So in the end, it's, you know, it's not great to be a, a progressive who is also in a comfortable professional job,
0: but it's better than not caring at all. It's better than being a Tory. And also, I suppose, we're all aware, we seem to live in an increasingly unequal world and you have said, I think, over the course of your own lifetime that social mobility has actually fallen into reverse, that the ladders are steeper, the inequality greater than when you started out writing. Do you really think it's more pronounced today than when you began, Polly?
1: Well, I know I'm very shocked at this, but it is and I've been reporting about this since the 80s. I mean, if you... Look at the Institute for Fiscal Studies or the Resolution Foundation and all the reports that they produce and the academic reports, they all say the same thing the history that I was taught, my O-levels, if you like, GCSE history, was a history of onward progress, factory acts, uh, universal suffrage, more freedoms, better working conditions, and increasingly, more equal pay, not equal, but the gap between the top and the bottom lessening, until you get to the 1980s, when suddenly it explodes off in the opposite direction. The lid comes off the top of high earnings, it was the city's big bang and other things, Suddenly, CEOs began earning unimaginable sums that weren't true in the 50s, 60s, 70s. The gap got very wide in the 1980s and has stayed that way ever since. Any move towards greater equality has fallen back, and there is not much sign of it getting better anytime in the near future. So, social mobility has gone into reverse children are less likely now than their parents' or grandparents' generation to move up the social ladder in earnings or in lifetime uh, wealth, owning homes, all of those things. Uh, Life is harder for them than it was for previous generations. And that's really depressing because I'd always been educated in the idea of permanent progress.
0: So you wonder what how one can resolve this. And it's a reason, I suppose, disaffected communities, for instance, in the United States, you know, a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because they believed in some way that his message he was going to make their lives better. But so how do we resolve this? How does one make this divide less?
1: Well, America is the most unequal of of all Western countries by far. And... Of course, the more unequal, the more unhappy and dissatisfied people there are, the more vulnerable that is to populism, of people offering cheap, easy solutions, of offering scapegoats, whether it's foreigners or whatever, so that uh, they can hold power uh, over the people who really need help of a very different kind or support. And I think that's a great danger, that if societies get too unequal, they're also vulnerable to demagogues of one kind or another. I think perhaps um, in this country, we had a, you know, Brexit was an expression of that to some extent, that the people who are most strongly Brexit were the most disadvantaged from left behind places, old mining and industrial areas, also people who were less likely to have an education, older, because the older you are, the less likely you are to be educated. I'd say the one good thing about progress is that each generation is getting more educated than the last. Um, and in that, you have to put your hope that people will get better at seeing what's really going to make a better society as opposed to succumbing to, you know, in this country, oddly enough, you know, five Etonian prime ministers since the war, Tories <sighs> winning over and over again, and they only win because they get enough working class votes to support them. Maybe we're getting to an end of that.
0: Look, it's a fabulous book. And Andrew Marr from the BBC, I thought he gave a great description. He says it's funny, moving and crammed with extraordinary stories. The best and least hypocritical book about class I've ever read. The book is called An Uneasy Inheritance. My Family and Other Radicals It's published by Atlantic Books. It's available now. It's a great read. Polly Toynbee, thank you for taking the time to speak to me today about your memoir.